Great. Okay. Well, today I am so excited. We have Val Litwin with us. We kick off our BC Leadership Candidate Series with our first guest, Val Litwin, who announced his intention to run on June the 22nd. Originally from Victoria, Val began his career in social enterprise when he co-founded Extreme Kindness and created a social movement that spread across the country. In 2002, the group launched a volunteer tour and web series, which stretched across North America and focused on committing random acts of kindness. This tour resulted in Val becoming the author of a best-selling book called Called Arms, Embrace a Kindness Revolution, which looks at corporate responsibility and the power of communities to build social capital. From there, he built and sold the first-to-market franchise concept of Blow Blow Dry Bar, which now has 95 locations worldwide. By working alongside two inspiring female business partners, Val became an advocate of biz- women in business, which no doubt has been highlighted in his role as chair of the Forum, or previously known as the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs. Most recently, Val served as CEO of the BC Chamber of Commerce. Under his leadership, the BC Chamber led the way on proactive COVID response, Indigenous rights, and lobbying governments for better diversity and gender representation on boards. Typically, our guests focus on a few key topics or themes. Given that we want to maximize our time, we're going to take a different approach today and try a lightning round of questions on a series of topics, along with anything else we may stumble upon. Val, let's start by telling our viewers what drove you to seek the nomination for leader of the BC Liberal Party. Yeah, great. Well, first of all, am am I allowed to say it's great to be here? (laughs) You absolutely are. Yeah, thank you for coming Um, on. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. Well, yeah, I mean, I... I think BC and the BC Liberal Party are long overdue for a new definition of success. And I want to kickstart that conversation and that process. So when I look at the demographic shifts that are happening in BC right now, 61% of the population in British Columbia is 39 or younger. And they're asking a totally different set of questions. They're looking at a totally different set of problems than the generations before them. Um, We need to embrace that generation, welcome them into the political discourse, which I don't think they feel particularly excited about. Young people are really into issues, maybe not so much political parties. And I'm just excited to bring that fresh perspective, still tap into the wisdom and experience of the party, but let's get going on redefining what success looks like for the party. Okay, great. Well, it's exciting to hear. And um, there's a long list of uh, embedded candidates that are going to be coming up against you here, people who've been in politics for a long time. Now, politics is not your forte, is that right? We can go deeper on that. But, you know, the last years I've been uh, in public policy, of course. I was CEO of the Whistler Chamber and CEO of the BC Chamber of Commerce, which is BC's biggest and broadest business network. So I was taking the voice of our members, and we had 36,000 of them around BC, uh, listening to their issues, packaging it up and taking it to Victoria and Ottawa, cutting red tape and getting things done legislatively to help those businesses and communities and people thrive. So I'm the outsider candidate here for sure, uh, but I bring a long history in um, business. I was an entrepreneur. Uh, you talked a little bit about Blow Blow Dry Bar, which was mm-hmm. an incredible fast growth story. Global brand now, 95 locations, which was really exciting. I spent some time in healthcare, which is a big thing we need to address. Uh, COVID's just exposed some of the holes we have in our healthcare system, of course. But no, I, I bring many years in, in different categories of business experience and public policy experience. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. That is a good point. And you're also a father of uh, and a husband and father of two young children. Is that right? Yeah. I got two little boys. I've got uh, my, my youngest is five months. Oh, wow. 
which makes this a really exciting uh, thing yeah. to be doing at this time. And my eldest is two and a half. So it's, it's been an amazing ride. Yeah. Yeah. Now you've been, as you pointed out, you, you were the CEO of the BC Chamber of Commerce. And most currently, you're the chair of what's called the Forum. Do you want to talk for a minute about what the Forum is? Yeah. So I've been a volunteer of the Forum for almost 15 years now. And that's looked for me like being a mentor, empowering women uh, in their startup businesses to help them achieve maximum success. The Forum is a, a charitable organization. It was based out of Vancouver. It's now national, uh, founded by Christina Anthony, who's uh, one of my heroes and, uh, and idols in, in the business world for sure. But our mission is to leave no women behind. And I think when I reflect on how COVID has impacted us here in Canada, women especially have been really hard hit. So I'm very excited to get into a conversation around how do we help build back with women in the lead. Uh, because they've really been impacted by COVID. And there's, we just know when a woman is running a business, uh, core values are coming to the fore. They're doing really well. They're building a business for, for longevity. And um, this is a big slice of the economy I want to support. Okay, great. Well, these kind of um, experiences and background, I'm sure are going to be really critical when we get into some of these questions we're going to talk about, especially around how we get the economy back on track here in BC, talking about taxes, talking about supporting businesses. So Val, you're running for the, the BC uh, lead, Liberal Party leadership, and you're running up against some incumbents that are been in the in the party for a while: uh, Ellis Ross, um, Michael Lee, Gavin Dew, and maybe Aaron Gunn. This seems like a long list. Um, so, can you help the listeners understand what makes you, you know, distinctly different from the rest of these? Yeah. So yeah. far, men. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I hope we'll hear about Renee Merrifield uh, announcing and entering the race right. as well. Point, yeah. and, I, and I'm excited about the field. It's an interesting mix of experience, uh, you know, time in the party. Uh, there's some outsider candidates uh, like myself. And, it, you know, please, dear God, let there be at least one woman in the race. So I'm excited to see Renee hopefully enter as well. I, I'm different because I am the outsider candidate, but I have worked in the public policy space. So as CEO of the BC Chamber, like I said a, a couple of minutes ago, but we can underscore it, you know, our, our obsessive focus was to represent small, medium-sized enterprise, big business in every region, every sector of this province, um, and to take the policy things they were telling us to do, cut red tape in Victoria and Ottawa, and really make sure we could create thriving communities around those businesses. So um, my, my perspective is I'm a little bit younger, I'm, I'm 43, but I've got this business experience, I got the public policy experience, and I'm bringing a fresh perspective. Like I said, 61% of the population in BC now is 39 or younger. We have to embrace what they're seeing as the emerging issues. And, you know, I think about something like affordability. If you're a young person, we were just chatting about this outside. If you're a young person, you're wondering if you have a future in BC when you look at the cost of, of homes right now, right? right. So we sure. have to lean into some of these uh, questions and problems and get working. So that's good. Let's talk about the, the party itself. Um, you mentioned this really interesting stat that I hadn't heard before. That's 61% of British Columbians are under the age of 39. 39 or under. Right. Yeah. And you've said that they, um, we need to get them engaged in the political discourse and that they're not so party driven as they probably are policy or idea, ideal, ideal driven. So let me start by asking about the par party itself. Let's say fast forward a year from now, you win this nomination. You're now the head of the BC Liberal Party. What are the first few things that you want to do to change the party to be different in 2022 
than it's been in the last decade. Yeah. You know, I, I think there's a, a number of things we have to do. So let me let me give you a couple of, of the top ones. We need to state unequivocally on day one, we will not tolerate intolerance in this party. And that's not to suggest that this party has, but I think there have been some elements within the party where we haven't been as clear and decisive as we could be and, and stood up and, and taken a lead to say this is not the behavior or the culture we embrace in this party. That's the number one thing. The second piece is we need to go out there and present a vision, which is what I'm selling, and we'll get into that a little bit more, to a younger set of voters, still bringing the legacy wisdom and experience of the party and all the hardworking caucus members that are sitting in Victoria. They've done incredible work. But we now have to speak a language around issues and matters that connect with young people. And we need to do that. We need to bring them into the party. We need diverse people, individuals, backgrounds, ideas. We need to reinvigorate the party. And that's, I think, one of the most important ways we're going to do that. This party as well, we have to shake off the old brand that we're pro-business only. So this party, as you know, has led in really exciting ways. And I, I think back to 2008 when this party you know, put forward the world's first revenue neutral carbon tax. We led the world on the environment. And that was something the BC Liberals did, but not a lot of people remember that. We used to own the environmental file. So we need to get back to those big ideas and that big leadership to demonstrate that we are the party of the future. I know we can do that. So these are uh, these are just a few of the things that are keeping me up at night in a good way. Okay. Yeah. Um, you mentioned about the legacy of the BC Liberal Party. Um, there are a lot of uh, incumbents. There's a lot of people in this party that have been there from the days of Christy Clark and, mm -hmm. and probably maybe even further back, but uh, definitely people have been in this for a very long time. Um, do you have any comments about your view or do you have any views on those people and being in the party and the sort of stigma that it's not really changed much? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that comment's an accurate comment. It, and it's not a reflection of the incredibly intelligent and committed people that are sitting in Victoria representing this party and the people in their ridings. This is just about what do all great brands do? They succession plan and they have the ability to reflect on where they're at and where they need to go. So I, I just think this is a natural inflection point. All parties go through this. But there is an urgency to this moment. And like I said about this party being painted as just a pro-business only party, we now need to deliver for people, for communities, in the environment in a way we never have before. Because any party that isn't putting people in the middle of their picture, they are not electable anymore right. in this modern society. So we do that. We do it authentically. And then we still fire up a hot economy that creates the revenue and the opportunity to support those deep services for people and communities. With respect to the party name itself, would you change it? I'm 100% open to changing the name, but we need to have a deeper conversation first around the values and principles that underpin the party. So um, we, this, you know, I, I look at that young generation, younger generation, they're in their, almost in their 40s now, right? They have kids, they're voting, they have uh, respectable jobs. That group is the most brand savvy generation in the history of this planet. If we just go ahead and slap on a new color palette and logo onto this party, but we don't change what's on the inside, it won't work. Mm. So we need to have a deeper conversation, but absolutely let's, let's pair that with a conversation around a name change. Mm -hmm. uh, we are down to a uh, two party system for better or for worse. I'm sure Sonia and Adam on the Green Party wouldn't like me to say that, but let's just call it what it is. You've got a two party system here in British Columbia. On one hand, you've got the NDP, which would be just painted as a 
left-leaning socialist sort of group, and then on the right side, more, as you said, painted as a pro-business uh, conservative group being the BC Liberals. Do you have any views on the fact that we have a uh, two-party system here in BC? And just curious on your comments on that. Yeah, I mean, this is part of the problem, I think, in terms of how each party has branded itself or how the public has branded them. The average British Columbian I speak to, actually the average Canadian, but certainly in BC, they're socially liberal. They care about people. They care about their most vulnerable. They want to see uh, progress on the environment. They, they want to take a stand against racial injustice. But fiscally, they're just saying, look, don't, don't put me into generational debt. Uh, let's have a competitive, hot economy, a fair economy that supports people. So my, my challenge to the party is we can become that party that gets people back in the middle by being just where we need to be on the social issues and just where we need to be on the fiscal side of things too. And that is not hard. And that is what the average British Columbian wants. And I, what I'm hearing from most of them is they're conflicted when they park their vote because they don't see that reflected today in their political parties in BC. Gotcha. Okay. So we're going to do this, um, this lightning round as we want to describe now. So I've got a series of comments and questions and I'm going to fire through these pretty quick. I'd like to get your fairly short and um, very mm -hmm. specific answers. That was my mm -hmm. preference. Mm -hmm. You answer whatever way you want, but I can just tell you that listeners are going to want to hear something more um, concrete than just a bunch of philosophical BS, which sure. is what we tend to get yeah, yeah. with a lot of politicians, to be honest. A mental with you. note, no yeah. philosophical <laughs> BS. Good. Okay. All right. Ready to go? First one, environment. Okay. So BC has a motto, Splendor sin ocasa, ocaso which loosely translated from Latin means splendor without diminishment. The splendor refers to BC's rich natural heritage, which we have greatly diminished after years of human activity. So the question for you, the first one, is BC Liberals significantly increased the rate of old growth logging in BC's interior during their time in government. Where do you stand on protecting old growth preservation efforts today? Yeah, so... On this particular topic, we actually need a bigger vision and long-term plan around forestry in BC. That, that is the ticket. And I actually do agree with the sentiment um, very passionately that the future of forestry in BC is about value, not volume. But let's call a spade a spade. A physical tree is captured carbon. It is a carbon sink. It is the building material of the future. And BC is already leading in some of its forestry practices. So my, my take on, on this one, for sure, we should continue to push our environmental performance in all our primary uh, sectors, you know, the resource, resource sectors. But we have an incredible opportunity with forestry in BC if we get the balance right in terms of our harvest, that it's sustainable. And this is a product the world wants. And we are, we are harvesting it in a sustainable, low-carbon footprint way. So I see this as an advantage for BC, and this bridges for me into the larger platform piece that I'm sure won't surprise you because you heard me talk about it at the BC Chamber. We have a low-carbon advantage in BC. We have to maximize that opportunity. Now, the economic overlay here, and I know this is a speed round. I'll bring it to a close. The economic overlay here is let's just look at Ferry Creek for a second. So in 2016, when I was CEO, of, uh, just stepping into CEO of the BC Chamber, we tabled a policy that said we need to keep Ferry Creek intact, but we had an economic lens on it. If those beautiful trees stay in place, the community that is there and the Pachita First Nations, this is a, a tourism visitor economy opportunity for them. So I think we can be creative about how we treat these spaces. 
But for sure, this is a building product that the world wants. It's low carbon and we do it better than anywhere else. Okay. Would you ban old growth uh, logging? So like I said, I think we need a bigger vision around how we approach forestry in BC. There are specific tracks I know that have been identified as, as ones we should really work hard to preserve. So for me, I'm open to calibrating that mix of old growth and second growth. Okay. What would climate leadership look like under you and what are some of the targets you would focus on? So I'm totally committed to net zero by 2050, which is sort of the ultimate uh, standard right now globally. So I think BC can meet that. We might even be able to perform better than that. My, my take on this connects absolutely with our low carbon economic advantage. We know now in places like Europe, there are going to be really tough parameters on goods that are imported into those markets in terms of how they're extracted, how they're produced, what is their carbon footprint. Because we have so much clean energy here in BC with our hydro assets, we produce the cleanest products on planet Earth, um, forestry, mining, natural gas extraction, et, et cetera. So we need, um, we need to keep embracing that we have that low carbon advantage as we push, push forward on our environmental practices around extraction. Um, in terms of uh, park space, this is something I'm really excited about. You know, I think okay. BC is currently sitting at 15% of our land base is preserved and dedicated to parks and spaces where people recreate. That's where they stay healthy. That's where they rejuvenate. I think we can keep pushing that. That would be a really exciting piece for me. Is Give me a context. Is 15% by most other jurisdictions in Canada a lot, a little... Uh yeah, you know, that's a good one. Off the top of my head, I, I think BC is doing really well. Um, but we know there's an economic opportunity as well with the visitor economy. Economy People come from around the world to enjoy our pristine natural spaces. So let's, let's leverage that and work that moving forward. Yeah, okay, great. Do you support LNG projects? 100% I do. So LNG Canada in Kitimat will be the cleanest LNG plant on planet Earth. And so why wouldn't we want to supply a low carbon fuel energy to other jurisdictions and offset, hopefully in many cases, coal, which is a, a dirtier, um, uh, you know, fossil fuel sure, or a higher carbon fuel. This is an incredible leadership opportunity for us. And it's an incredible job opportunity. There was a recent report that came out about the rising cost of the site C dam. Um, I don't know the numbers, but they're always much, much higher than everybody always anticipates at the beginning. There's been a lot of controversy about it. Now, the NDP said that they would not proceed with a Site C dam when they first were being elected. Um, and of course, the Green Party was starkly against it. Um, if you were the Premier of British Columbia tomorrow, would you carry on with a Site C dam project? So I don't have the current up-to-the-minute papers in front of me to make a full and informed decision. What I would say is that we in British Columbia have to look at that asset not on a 10-day, 10-week, 10-year time horizon. This is a 100-year asset that generates clean energy for us. So we're fe feeling a ton of short-term pain to get this project over the line. But if we can build it well, we should be grateful that we still have this asset. Now, more energy production is getting um, you know, distributed, right? We know thermal, wind, solar, there's great opportunities there. And we know the cost per kilowatt hour is coming down. But I, I've been a huge fan of Site C. And I think when you look at a jurisdiction like Metro Vancouver, that's putting a mandate on no more, uh, you know, internal combustion engines by whatever the date is, I don't have it off the top of my head. We will need more electric vehicles. We will need more power. Sure. And maybe we won't need it tomorrow, 
we will need it in 10 years, 20, 30, 50. Yeah, well said. Okay, next comment and then follow on questions to finish off on an environment. We have a pipeline, it's the TMX pipeline that most people in the province are against. During the last election, former Liberal leader, Andrew Wilkinson said that he would end the NDP's obstruction program for the Trans Mountain Pipeline and will take the position that permitted projects should not be blocked by protesters. So first question for you, would you agree with the former leader that British Columbians do not have the right to protest a decision made in Ottawa with local input? So they have every right to peaceful protest. They don't have a right to block the progress of the project. So I am a huge fan of this country and our ability to speak out free speech, to protest things we don't believe in, but we can't physically obstruct something that's in the best interests of, the, of this country that has been approved and, and has all the permits to move forward. Mm -hmm. Second question, the federal liberals projected $500 million a year out of the expanded Trans Mountain Pipeline and promised to spend it all on cleaner sources of energy. How would you ensure BC got its fair share and what resources would you be using the funding for? Yeah, so for me, this really connects to the story BC wants to tell in the future as we sit on the Pacific Rim and supply the world with our low-carbon products. If BC can position itself to be the number one market jurisdiction of choice that provides these uh, resources and IP to the world, then I think we can do better on our share of that 500 million for sure. But it has to connect with a meaningful narrative for us around economic opportunity and progress on the environment. Okay, excellent answers for the environment. You've done well. Okay, so good. that's round one. <laughs> now the next round we're doing is on housing and affordability. According to a recent study by Research Co., a growing proportion of British Columbian residents believe housing interventions by the provincial government through taxation are ineffective in improving affordability. So first question for you is how do you define affordability and can you define it with an absolute number? What's your definition of affordability? Yeah, I don't think you can define it with an absolute number because we're not talking about an absolute person. We need, we need a diverse mix of housing options for all people in British Columbia. Um, I think maybe what the critique was implying there is a lot of the solutions that we've seen rolled out from this government are on the demand side, but the problem is supply. <laughs> we need to build more homes. So my, my approach with this would be um, we have to address supply. Some of those uh, issues for sure can be tapped into by the provincial government, but many of these really sit at the feet of municipal government. So um, one of the reports that just came out on this issue was saying we need to mandate, you know, time limits on approval, you know, sets, permits, all this stuff to get a project over the line. That's great. That's a big part of it. But we need to look at getting into the municipal uh, layer of government to get them to zone certain amounts of land so we can start building thousands and thousands of homes. So Canada, this might this number might have shifted a little bit because of COVID, but we're welcoming, I think, almost over 400,000 people to Canada this year through immigration, which is fabulous. We need this. About 16% of them are coming to BC. That's around 75,000 people. Where, which probably about half are coming to the Metro Vancouver area. 90%. Oh, 90%. Wow. So where are we putting them? And we've got you know a, a business community that is growing. That's exciting. They're scaling up. So we need to get going on this. It's a it's a uh, supply problem, and a lot of the choke points are at the municipal level. Where is the current government and the one prior failed to make housing more affordable 
in the city of Vancouver and surrounding areas. You know, again, for me, this really does sit at the municipal level. I, I think one one piece that has been a real problem that I've, I've heard from, um, you know, people that are out there trying to build our housing stock is the CACs and other costs that municipalities are putting onto developers. It's choking out the opportunity to produce an affordable home. So you get these layering on of costs. And by the time it reaches the consumer, there, there are so many additional costs that are put on. This is part of the reason why we're, we're seeing skyrocketing prices, yeah. right? The thing that... Isn't it amazing how many municipal politicians don't understand that? Yeah, I mean... I find it shocking. It, it, it's, it's incredible. Um, the thing that really breaks my heart, though, and I heard this on CBC a couple of years ago, but this, for me, it really epitomized the issue. There was a, a charitable group or a not-for-profit group that was really trying to get zoning and approval on a project that would have been a shelter for women coming out of abusive relationships. Um, they were still subject to a community amenity contribution, which is, you know, things like developers are asked to, you know, can you put, give me half a million to put, build out a park across the street or what have you. And this proponent was saying, no, 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 you don't understand. We are the community amenity. Exactly. We will be a home for people, you know, escaping these abusive relationships, but they couldn't get it over the line because the numbers didn't work. And Vancouver lost the opportunity to protect people in a vulnerable situation. It was a beautiful project. It was a great idea. This, to me, is, is the heart of the issue. And it, it's heartbreaking when we can't get those kinds of projects over the line that make our society more civil and inclusive and supportive, in, in this case, of women. And, and we know that's, that's a group that needs some help. Would you support implementing the New Zealand model where most foreigners are banned from acquiring real estate except for those who either are citizens or have permanent residency cards. So I'm, I'm open to different policy answers around this one. My, but here's where we have to be careful. Foreign direct investment coming into a jurisdiction, Canada, BC, is a really healthy thing. And there is a, there is a correlation between foreign investment coming in and wages going up. The question is, should all that money be going into real estate? The answer is no. I would like to have a conversation around where else can we take this money and where else can we invest it in British Columbia. Um, I also want to create a, an international reputation for ourselves where we give people exciting investment opportunities. But if it leads to a runaway market where locals, Canadians, British Columbians can't afford to live and stay here and grow families, something's not working. Do you believe that um, the rising cost of housing has been a result of uh, offshore money coming into BC? That's been a driver for sure. Um, and we know there's there's reports pointing that out. The, the question is, where is that investment coming in? What what level of the marketplace and who is it really pushing out of the market? So this this is a thing. This has happened. Foreign money has come in. It's scooped up product and it's it's priced British Columbians out of the market. Um, so we need we need tight policy around that. I'm I'm a fan of some of the measures that have been put in place by the Liberal government and the NDP government as well. This is something that calls for a nonpartisan solution. We just have to figure this out. We have to slow down the rising prices and we have to build more homes. The BC Liberal government under Christy Clark before the election that she lost, well, I guess it was 2017, I think it was maybe about six or nine months before that election, brought in the um, foreign homebuyers tax. And I think initially it was uh, 15 or 20%, and then the, the NDP raised it to, I think, 25%. If, if you win this 
uh, this goal of becoming the head of the BC Liberal Party, and you become premier, would you change the foreign homebuyer tax from where it's at today, which I think is 25%? Listen, it's a smart policy move. And I didn't quite answer the question around New Zealand. I think, I, I don't know that, that I would go that far as to what they're doing in BC, but we have to slow down or we have to redirect some of that investment that's coming into Canada, especially when people are parking here, money here for a period of time and then exiting. If you're bringing your money to Canada, we're a great place to place your bet. So stay here, stick around, participate in the economy, um, you know, build with us. Mm -hmm. But we do have to, I think we have to curtail, uh, especially when it comes to housing, that, that piece of investment for sure. Okay. Opening doors, unlocking housing supply for affordability is an 88-page report created by the Canada BC Expert Panel on Housing Affordability. It was released on June 17th. In it, there were 23 recommendations, but two stand out. Number one, review the impact of capital gains exemption on principal residents. What's your view? Yeah, we, so we can't, I don't, I don't want to change the, the capital gains rules. Okay. So Meaning it, you want to allow British Columbians to continue to make untaxed gains on their principal residents. This, this is an asset you worked hard to get. And if it appreciates in value, I think you should benefit from that. But that is not, that is only one side of the equation, right? We also have to work on the side of the equation where people that don't have homes and are trying to get into the marketplace. So I, I want to see people that have purchased a home benefit from that, whether they're heading into retirement or their family is growing and they need to get a bigger home or a bigger town home or a bigger condo, whatever that product looks like. But we do that in conjunction with a really smart strategy that welcomes people into the marketplace. And I, for me, it comes back to housing supply. Okay. Okay. Good stuff. Next topic, cannabis. Let's ready go for there. this one. I'm ready. Okay. Cannabis has been legal in Canada since 2018. Number one, very open-ended question is what is your position on cannabis here in BC? So, I mean, it's a legal market opportunity now, and BC has some legacy wisdom in this particular category. We've got a lot of craft growers out there. We should be tapping into this big time, but we need to set up the opportunity for the whole industry to choke out black market weed. Um, it's killing the opportunity. And right now um, it's a tax and regs thing. So we just need to get the regulations and the tax right. So real legitimate retailers and cultivators of cannabis can compete with the black market, plain and simple. Okay. Business licenses in Vancouver are more expensive for cannabis business licenses than many other municipalities. As an example, uh, Vancouver cannabis operators have to pay just over $33,000 in a year to run their retail cannabis stores. By contrast, in Kamloops, it's $5,000 a year. Any thoughts or comments on that? Yeah, it's way too high. There, there's no reason to charge that much for a, a cannabis business license. So if we think the opportunity is as big as it is, and I think nationally now cannabis is a $16 billion annual industry, uh, we need to amplify that market opportunity. Mm -hmm. And some of, the, some of the reports and data I've been looking at in terms of employment, these retailers are paying uh, at a minimum um, you know, living wage and, and better. So there's, there's great job opportunities for, for people in this sector. And like I said, in BC, it, it's something where we have a bit of brand, uh, maybe halo effect. We know how to do this. And so let's create pathways for people in the black market as well, growing illegal weed. Let's get them into the legitimate marketplace and competing. But this is, this is way too much for a license. Yeah. 
Look, in my view, the uh, and I've echoed this to Minister Farnworth. Uh, um, in my view, there's three big problems of allowing this illegal market to continue to flourish. It's illegal to run an illegal cannabis shop, but there's no enforcement anymore. The law enforcement has really zero upside to doing this. And they've got a lot of other things that they're trying to focus on, and half of them are getting defunded anyways. When you have illegal cannabis operators operating, there's three big problems in my mind. There's a health issue, number one, because you're dealing with unregulated product and you don't know what it's in it. Number two, it's being run by criminals, employing criminals who don't pay any taxes. And number three is there's a... Um, there's an opportunity for that to spill into other problems in our society that can become bigger. I mean, I, I look at the gang activity and the shootings that are going on right now, and a lot of people think I'm crazy, but I think a large part of it is being driven by this sort of jockeying of, of, of cannabis activity because it's a very, very big business today. And these regulated stores are limited in what they can do. I mean, as a simple example, you're an unregulated illegal cannabis operator, and I'm a regulated one. There's two on 4th Avenue in Kitsilano. Mm. One of them is Dutch Love, a little promo for Dutch Love. My friend Jeff Donnelly owns Dutch Love, and so you know he tells me about this. And the legal operator up the street, he knows when they get busted because in about two to three hours, their sales double. And within 12 to 18 hours later, their sales are back to normal because, because they brought new product back into the legal shop. He cannot deliver cannabis to people's homes. His bars that he owns can deliver food and alcohol, but he can't deliver cannabis, but the legal shop up the street can. I've given you a bit of a discourse on, on the cannabis space. Why, why don't you comment on some of those points? Yeah, so I mean, this is, so when, when you create a brand new market opportunity from zero, which Canada did in 2018 with cannabis, you have to go all in on enforcement and a smart regulatory tax regime to support the flourishing of that industry. When you're starting from zero, you need a leg up. So, you know, that we're failing on the enforcement side is a big, big problem, of course. So um, how would you tackle that, Val? Because I completely agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. Rule, rules are not, or have no value if there's no enforcement. Yeah. You know, like imagine this, so here's an analogy. If there's no cops out there slowing down people from speeding, what would stop people from driving 80 kilometers an hour through a school zone, right? People hopefully drive, stop, drive, don't drive that speed through school zones because they don't want to hit any kids. Yeah. But the reality is you don't, you don't actually get people to slow down unless you have enforcement. Mm -hmm. So let's hear about how would you tackle that as the premier of this province? You know what? We would just have to be prepared to make an investment to get it right so we can set that industry on the right track for the future. So... Already the numbers coming nationally out of the potential of this industry are huge. I mean, they're as big in some cases as, as provincial resource sectors. This is a big opportunity. And there's there's additional economic opportunity attached with, you know, tourism and the visitor economy. I mean, you know, you, you talk to people in the industry, they're kind of going, hey, look, beverages, you know, um, you know, weed-infused food from a culinary perspective, there is a market out there to come to BC. So let's invest to get the enforcement right. Let's support the legal operators. Let's choke out the illegal operators. And I suspect over time, once we level set that market, we will not have the same costs associated with the enforcement that we maybe do in the beginning. But you can't say yes to a new market opportunity and then walk away. 
you have to stay engaged. You have you have to watch what's happening in the marketplace and and you know how the field is sort of settling in. So, I, I think everything you say makes sense. Okay, great. Um, speaking on the topic of enforcement and law enforcement, simple question: the defund the police movement that sort of started last year. Would you support that or do you not support that? Absolutely not. But what I support is exploring new models around law enforcement and how we support and protect people in vulnerable situations. So uh, my neighbor and and friend who lives across the street from me, she's a a psychiatric nurse and she rides all day, every day with a police officer in the same car through the downtown east side. And when they come up to a situation where law enforcement is required, there's criminal activity or there's a conflict, the police officer steps out of the car. When it looks like someone is having a, a tough day, there's a breakdown of some sort, someone is clearly um, has been impacted by a trauma, then she gets out of the car. So my belief is we need both, but I do think modern society keeps exploring and pushing the boundaries on what that hybrid model could look like because we don't need police in certain situations, but we also don't need a psychiatric nurse in certain situations. So let's match the support and the resource with the situation. Okay, next topic is on childcare. The current NDP government sold many voters on this concept of $10 a day daycare. It's a twice made campaign promise at this point. Do you think $10 a day daycare is actually possible? I think it's possible. We we need to step up the, the, the tempo, the pace of execution on this one. For me, this is obviously about quality care for kids and supporting families, but especially coming out of COVID, this is about supporting women who have been impacted statistically more than men because they are still that primary care, in that primary caregiver situation. It falls to the women in the family in many cases. So um, there, are, there are a lot of layers to this for me, but I think especially now recovery, economic recovery is attached to how well we can execute on getting care for kids. And my wife and I, it, we've been on a wait list for a long time for our, our little guy. He's two and a half, um, but we'll be finally getting into daycare in September. So I'm excited for that. I'm grateful. I know it'll be amazing, but um, this is a big deal. It's impacting our economy. It's impacting families and it's impacting kids. Uh, the NDP scrapped the MSP premiums. Would you bring those back? No way. Not a chance. It was actually the Liberals uh, in their final budget that said, we're going to get rid of the MSP. They didn't actually know what they were going to do on the other side of that. Obviously, they had some money in the bank. There was a big surplus that year um, heading into that budget. So not a chance. The MSP was uh, it was regressive. It was unhelpful. Uh, it didn't make sense. Um, so no, MSP is gone for good. So it's fascinating to hear that from you because being that you were former CEO of the BC Chamber of Commerce, there's a lot of business owners out there who've complained about this added cost of now having to absorb the what they call it, the employer health tax? EHT. I didn't yeah. say I support the EHT. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. let's hear that. So, let, so, let's, the, so yeah. let's keep going. Yeah. So we want, our. when I was the CEO of the BC Chamber of Commerce, our members want healthy employees. They need healthy employees as an end in itself, but also because they want vibrant, healthy people running their business and, and driving growth. The employer's health tax, a payroll tax, is probably the right way to deliver it, but we haven't calibrated the tax properly. And there is probably still some conversation around the shared cost, right? I mean, it is a personal benefit. Should the individual pick up a, a part of that tab? It's, it's a conversation. But 
what I don't like is where the EHT kicked in at, at the threshold and how that affects small business. What I, what I think is very interesting too, we are creating a narrative and it's a, a, a narrative I agree with and, and something I would push if I was to become liberal, uh, leader of the BC Liberal Party is we need to sprint into this digital future. We have an incredibly innovative marketplace with tech startups midstream. And now we're seeing more and more unicorns in BC, which is really exciting. We got the post-secondary institutions to power that. If you're a fan of the tech sector and the jobs and opportunities it creates, you know that in that startup phase, you're often pre-revenue, right? Like very few companies launch with the technology and they're already generating revenue. We have to be careful if that's a sector we wanna see grow, that we're not taxing them too much before they're making actual revenues, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, part of this conversation is about the hosting conditions for business in BC. Are we creating the right tax environment that yes, supports people, but isn't killing our opportunity? in sectors where, like I said, with the tech sector, you've got tons of companies that are pre-revenue, but they're paying more and more and more tax. And to grow, you have to hire more people. So your payroll keeps growing. So you're paying more and more EHT as you go. So MSP, let's kill it. Let's never see it again. A payroll tax, I understand why it's there, but it has to be calibrated the right way. So we're not choking future economic opportunity and wage growth for sure. people in British Columbia. Yeah, yeah. What about tax reform around personal income tax? Uh, as you noticed, I brought my calculator in here because I thought we have to start crunching some numbers. <laughs> I, I used to pay, I'm fortunate enough to be in the highest marginal tax bracket. I used to pay 49.8%, whatever it was, 49.8% tax. I now pay 53.5. And I have to admit, the day I found that out, the day it was announced, there was a psychological shift. I picked up the phone that day and I called my tax accountant and said, you know, all those sort of schemes, not scams, schemes that you were wanting to me to implement over the last decade? Let's, let's open those all back up yeah. because I don't like the fact that, you know, if I go as an entrepreneur and take a risk and that fails, sure, I got a tax loss that I can apply against to gain at some point in the future. But if I have a gain in my risk that I take, I got to give up more than 50% to the government. So would you change personal income tax rates in BC if you were a premier? This is a big question, right? I mean, this has to fit Would you with change the, larger... the, the highest marginal tax rate? I, I would be open to it, but here's here's exactly why I'd be open to it. We have to create an environment here in BC where we're not sending some of our brightest, most innovative people into other marketplaces. So the, the example I would use right now, you know, Alberta has an 8% corporate tax rate. BC has a 12% corporate tax rate. Alberta is coming over the Rockies to eat our lunch, right? And it's as simple as that. There's a ton of really affordable, fabulous commercial real estate in downtown Calgary right now. They got a really low corporate tax rate. If you are thinking about starting up a business in Western Canada, what market do you choose? So I know your question is around personal income tax, but I'm making the point that if we don't remain competitive, we will lose people, we will lose economic opportunity. So we do have to take the lens now of not just how do we fire up the economy. It has to now be fair. It has to be inclusive. It has to be distributed. But it is a part of a larger question. How are we competing and staying competitive with other jurisdiction inside Canada and out? Okay. What about on the corporate? Well, you mentioned just, you just mentioned corporate taxes. So maybe just to go back one more time, uh, personal income tax, highest marginal tax rate, sounds like you're open to changing it. Would you ever increase it? I can't see a need to increase it right now. I think, you know, the marginal, um, tax rate in, in Canada, if, if you're living in BC in, in particular, it, it, it's up there. So um, 
again, for me, this is about ensuring we are creating opportunity for people so they want to stay and they're not looking to other marketplaces to pay lower taxes. We, we need to stay exciting and motivating for people. Do you believe that the provincial government with its current you know, incoming sources of funds from uh, corporate and, pr- and personal income taxes and other, all the other ways in which this government will bring in its dollars, mm-hmm. think about in terms of a corporation, um, do you think that there's enough money there to cover all of the uh, uh, goals that the go- a government should have, like health care and child care and, and this type of thing? Or do you think we actually need to keep raising tax revenues to cover off all these costs? I don't think BC should be raising taxes. I think where we distribute the revenues from some of those taxes needs to be considered. Um, You know, we were talking a little bit a while ago about the carbon tax. It used to be revenue neutral, which is it would return to the people, the households and businesses that paid the tax. Now we lost neutrality on that tax and it's going to very specific government initiatives. And, um, you know, this begs the question, right? Like, what are we doing with the money? And this is something I'm really excited to look into as we get deeper into the campaign is where do we invest now moving forward so that we're hitting that dual goal of a vibrant, inclusive economy that's firing and strong on all pistons, but so we can still deliver for people. Okay. This leads into uh, responsible spending by government. And uh, I have the opinion that the provincial government has enough money to cover all of these objectives. I think there's just a huge amount of waste. Now, you and I are both from Victoria, so I'm sure we have friends and family that work in the public sector. Public sector employment is obviously really important because it helps kind of keep things moving along in the government. Mm-hmm. But that being said, the unemployment rate in Victoria today is lower than it is in Metro Vancouver. And in my view, it's because the current BC provincial government has been creating all these new public servant jobs. What's your view around uh, around that issue? Yeah, well, let me start with, if it wasn't for the incredibly talented and dedicated public service we have here in BC, BC would not have fared as well as it did through COVID. And so we, we just have to honor, I think, and first and foremost, all the incredibly talented people working in Vancouver, Vancouver, Victoria, around the province that work in the civil service. And there's about 35,000 of those people around BC. I think it's an interesting proposition. You know, we've learned with COVID that you don't have to be living in the place where you have your work, especially now. So it seems reasonable to me that we could be creating more jobs in Vancouver for a, a workforce that we know is way more distributed now. So let's let's have that conversation. That's interesting. I, I don't I, I don't I, I can't tell you exactly where the, these new jobs are being added. Do you have to physically be in, in a space to do that job? Maybe you do. But if you don't, we should be distributing these jobs around the province. Massey Tunnel. Mm-hmm. It's a big topic. It's been a big topic for a while. And we still have just the Massey Tunnel. The BC Liberals have been for years um, advocating for a bridge. NDP have been advocating for a new tunnel. And cer- currently we have nothing different than what we've seen before. Would you? Are you in the camp of a new tunnel, the current old tunnel, or a new bridge? So I'm a fan of an artery that facilitates the greater movement of people and goods. We are so behind on this. Today, if I could snap my fingers and if we could have a bridge or a tunnel, I would take either at this point. Um, I was more a fan of the bridge, but we have to open up that corridor. So some of these infrastructure projects are, these are big ticket items. And, you know, some of the tolls on the bridges we had in the lower mainland, they were, they were paying for those projects. It was politically expedient and I think really helped the NDP obviously get it over the line uh, by taking the tolls off the bridges. 
but we have to remember these are really costly. We, taxpayers pay for these no matter what. Uh, the question is, where does the burden of tax fall? Does it fall on everyone or does it fall more on the people that actually use that asset? I've never been against tolls. I can't see us unwinding that though. Okay. Let's one more comment on, on public service employees. Um, now you've got sort of, I call it three categories. You've got the CEOs. I mean, for example, the CEO of BCI, which was formerly BCIMC, BC Investment Management Corporation, makes $3 million a year, okay? But you've got another 48 people in senior positions, either at Crown Corporations or within government, who make over half a million dollars a year. And of course, you know, the premier gets paid okay. He doesn't get a huge salary, but there's 3,800 public service employees who make more than the premier. So these are the people paid at the real top of the echelon on and they get pensions on top of that, Val. Really cushy pensions. Mm -hmm. So you can see where I lean on this one. What's your view on those people and what they're getting compensated, especially in considering how many other business owners really suffered in this uh, last 14, 15 months because of the pandemic? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get it. You know, when, when, when you present a long list of people that are making exceptional annual salaries, it can be a, a tough pill to swallow as a, a, a taxpayer. It would be unfair if I grouped everyone into the same bucket because you're talking about a big bucket of people. But what I can tell you is the civil servants that are at the highest levels of government that I've interacted with over the years, I am so grateful we have them in those positions providing continuity between governments and, and leaders who really are focusing on four-year mandates and just how do they get elected in the next cycle. So we need world-class talented people if we're gonna be a world-class place. Um, so for me, it's not a slam dunk that just because you're making a lot of money, you don't deserve it. There are phenomenally talented people making this place work. Um, would I be open to a review of some of these salaries and some of these positions? Absolutely. That, that to me sounds like good governance. Okay, great. Last question on uh, responsible government when it comes to finances mm -hmm. is we've seen the federal and provincial government racking up massive deficits. In fact, there's not a lot of talk about the provincial one because the federal one's so damn big. But the provincial government has also been racking up massive deficits. You know, and in fairness, most governments around the world have because of COVID. But at what point do you draw the line and say, we got to get back to a balanced budget? So government should always be living within its means. But when the times are right for investment, in, in the case of COVID, a 100-year pandemic, and this is where we do have to sort of park it off to the side for a second. This is a very unusual situation we're in. We needed to invest in people. We needed to rescue business to support not just owner-operators, but communities, employees that depend on these, these Main Street businesses. So um, my approach, I'm fiscally conservative. One of the first things I would be doing is mapping out a, a trajectory to get us back to balanced budgets. Do you not believe that what I describe as corporate Darwinism, that, that maybe there's a lot of companies that were probably on the ropes and should have gone out of business anyways, not very well run, um, and greater businesses that would be able to come along and scoop up those assets, hire those employees could have happened, but they've been kept as sort of like described zombie companies because there's been enough government funding to kind of keep them going? Yeah, this, this was not a perfect system. And, and I think most of our elected officials admit it hasn't been perfect. But now that we've learned this lesson and COVID is not over, right? You know, we're hearing about new variants of concern coming out. You know, we're all hoping we're going to get over the line here with the vaccinations and herd immunity. But 
just what got us to here won't won't take us into the next stage. So we, I think we do need to review much more sharply any supports that are getting rolled out in in the future. Because yeah, you know, you read you read the news articles and you just think, well, listen. As you say, we're keeping businesses alive that maybe we're on the verge of insolvency to begin with, and, and that's not a smart investment. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Last topic is on healthcare, and it's always a hot one. The BC Coroner Service reported 176 overdose deaths in the month of April 2021, giving us a total of 680 deaths because of the province's drug supply being increasingly toxic. Premier John Horgan supports calls for decriminalization of illicit drugs for personal use. What's your position? So the science says this is a good way to go. My comment on that is it has to be paired with the right support services to get you out of that situation. And there's no judgment around why there's an addiction with an individual trauma, abuse, tough life situation. So I'm not judging that. But there is evidence now coming out that these are approaches that are smart, that help, but we have to pair it with detox, recovery, rehabilitation to get back into society, job opportunities, coaching and support. And this is a, this is a problem that has reached fever pitch, and we have to run toward unconventional solutions now. Um, back in February, the federal government provided $15 million to fund four BC pilot projects related to safe drug supply. Do you see funding of this step in, a step in the right direction? 100% I do. So we, we have a vulnerable population here in BC and let's not other them. They are our kids, they're our families, they're our members of our family, they're our friends. This is touching everyone. And we have to get really creative and bold about some of the solutions we take with this, with this Frankly, it's a humanitarian crisis, right? I mean, we have numbers, overdose deaths now that are they're hitting record highs constantly. That's not what my BC looks like. We save those people. We support those people. So I'm open to a full solution set. I am not an expert in this category, but I think a lot of people in BC are, and I think we have to listen to them. Member of Parliament Don Davies on the show mm-hmm. about a couple months ago to discuss efforts by the federal government to have universal dental care for uh, all families that uh, made less the $90,000 a year. He's he's big on this idea, but one of the things I challenged him on is that from a jurisdiction perspective, this is a, a healthcare issue. Mm-hmm. So, you know, shouldn't this be held by, I mean, when you and I deal with anything outside of our mouth, we're dealing with the provincial government. Mm-hmm. So why is it that the provincial government doesn't cover my mouth? And that's the sort of theme. So whether you want to call it federal or you want to call it provincial, my simple question is, do you support the idea of a healthcare system in BC that includes universal dental care? That's an interesting one. You know what, I, I would be open to it. What are your views on a private healthcare system within a public healthcare program? Yeah, so the minimum here is we need to deliver for everyone, but where there's an opportunity for, I'm just gonna use maybe a, um, an extreme example here. You've got an NHL hockey player that banged up their knee and they're willing to pay quadruple to get it uh, fixed so we can keep a public space open for someone else to slot in, I support that. But when the private system is impacting the public system in a way that's compromising care to people uh, that can't pay for the private system, then we have to get sharper in our policy and our approach. Okay. To wrap this up, um, I want us to take one to two minutes for you to kind of give the listeners a pitch about yourself, how do they get involved, and a reminder of like, you know, who is Val 
Litwin and and why should they be thinking about voting for you if they're a card-carrying member of the BC Liberal Party? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. I appreciate that. So my my call is it is time for the BC Liberal Party and BC itself to redefine what success looks like. And I'm here to catalyze that change. I want to be a part of that process. So I'm, I'm a political outsider, but I come with deep business experience. And I've spent the last eight years in public policy, working at the grassroots level, traveling BC, walking the resource projects. I know the main street businesses. I know the people, the leaders, trying to create a, a better business environment but really pushing the envelope forward too on social issues um, when I was CEO of the BC Chamber as well. So my vision for a modern BC Liberal Party is, is a party that still knows how to hotwire a, uh, a hot economy, but they put people in the middle of the picture. And what's changed is now 61% of the population in BC is 39 or under. We have to speak a new language. We have to speak about the issues in a new way to bring them into our political discourse. And we have to reflect that group. It needs to be diverse. We have to be inclusive and we have to embrace real change. And that's what I'm here to do. Great. How do people get involved if they want to be help you out with your campaign? If they listen to this podcast and like, this is the, this is the person I want to be behind. Oh, that's, that's awesome. So the, the web address, let's just go with the website, right? It's vallitwin.ca. So V-A-L-L-I-T-W-I-N.ca. We got a ton of tools on the site if you're choosing to join the team and volunteer. So we're going to make it really easy for people. And I'm getting into all 87 ridings over the next 87 days. So you want to host a Zoom craft beer session one evening with me, reach out through the website. I would love to Zoom into your community. And when it's safe to physically get there, I'll, I'll be looking forward to doing that too. Great. So 87 ridings in the next 87 days. A campaign never sleeps. <laughs> well, this has been great. Val Litwin. Uh, one of the first people to come. Actually, you are the first BC Liberal leadership candidate on our show. So thanks for being here. I wish you the best of luck. It's been a really uh, great conversation. I'm glad we finally got a chance to meet. Oh, I've loved being here. Thank you so much for the conversation. Great. Thanks, Val. 